G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill, and in this episode, Pastor Jeff is looking at the topic of sacrifice. He'll be in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, to see what we can learn from those who took a vow of sacrifice and what we may be able to adopt for our own lives today. Let's join Pastor Jeff now. And again, we're in Numbers, chapter 6. You know, one of my favorite stories that I've heard, uh, I don't know, I can't remember where I first heard it, was a, a story about Sherlock Holmes and his loyal student Watson. They would go on a camping trip and they've had, you know, a night in the wild and uh, they've sat around the campfire and then it's time after a fantastic evening just to go into the tent and go to sleep. And of course, they got a big tent and they do everything together. So the two sleeping bags side by side. And uh, after sleeping a few hours, suddenly... Uh, Sherlock Holmes woke up and he nudged Watson awake and he said to Watson, he said, look up in the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. And Holmes said, yeah, yeah, but what does that tell you? And he said, well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions and billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, it tells me that It's approximately a quarter past three. Uh, Theologically, it tells me that I can see that God is still all-powerful. He's on the throne and that we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, it tells me that I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. And he says, what does it tell you, Mr. Holmes? And Holmes was silent just for a moment. And he said, Watson, you idiot. It tells me that somebody stole our tent. (laughs) I love that little story. We don't have a tent. Uh, our preoccupation with stuff has stolen something from us, folks. And it's far more serious than a tent. You know, I don't know if you, this is your first week here in the series that we've been in, but even if it is, and if you're on a journey, look, this is the answer to the ultimate question of life. And it, it's basically a description of, 
of who we are in our generation, in our country. We have lost an internal joy that can only be found in dying to ourselves and living for something eternal. It is the great irony of life, and it's the primary message Jesus came to bring. Basically, to gain, you got to lose. To live, you got to die. To ascend, you've got to descend. But, but the reality is very few really believe that. And even those who do believe it don't actually live it out. That's why Jesus said the road would be very narrow. That claiming you believe something is totally different than actually living it out. But Jesus goes to great lengths to show you that the true Christ follower, the ones who's authentic, the one who's genuine, they will always be on this road that will lead ultimately to that destination. They'll always be moving in that direction to know that what you're really looking for in life, you don't get it by the pursuit of more gain. You get it in a totally different road. And that's why Jesus gave an incredibly different counter perspective to living and life. And this one word, this one theme you see all the way from Genesis when he has a conversation with Cain and Abel all the way to the end of the book of Revelation in the last chapter of Revelation. Now, I want to take you on a little journey. We're going to take a side road. We're still in Nehemiah, but we're going to go a little side road to set it up. Times you're going to think, are we still on the same journey? Yeah, we are. Because there's a dynamic here that has to be seen. It has to be embraced if you ever hope to find what it is ultimately that your soul is looking for. So to show you that dynamic, I want to take you back to the Old Testament in what is called a Nazarite vow. Now you'll find it in number six, not Nehemiah, but number six one, where the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite. Now two words there, special, a special vow is the word Hebrew word plea, which means to act in an extraordinary way. And Nazir, Nazarite means to set apart. So together they mean this, to set apart by acting extraordinarily. You're going to have to stay awake because I'm going to ask you to repeat some things. And we're going to start by this. On the count of three, we're going to say to set apart by acting extraordinarily. One, two, three. To set apart by acting extraordinarily. Now, if you think about this just for a moment, this is not something that's new. It's not like this is brand new to us. Let me give you that illustration again of Michael Phelps. I love the illustration of his training regiment, of his diet. He's the most decorated Olympian of all time, 22 Olympic medals, over three Olympics. People were shocked when he actually came back to Rio, and again, he won. There was an article in USA Today that talked about that he's the most disciplined athlete of all time. So let's take a look at what he eats for breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches, loaded with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise, two cups of coffee, one five-egg omelet, one bowl of grits, three slices of French toast topped with powdered sugar, three chocolate chip pancakes. And then for lunch, he eats one pound of enriched pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayo, one white bread, energy drinks packing a thousand calories each. For dinner, he will have a pound of pasta, an entire pizza, extra large, more energy drinks. Now you can do that when your workout routine is this. He trains six hours a day, six days a week without fail, even if Christmas day falls on a training day. He swims approximately 50 miles. That's 80 kilometers each week, which is eight miles on the average per day in the pool. 
Now, why does he do it? Because that's what an Olympian does. At no point does he stop and ask the question, can I stop all these disciplines and still be an Olympian? He knows the dynamic. To gain, you must lose. To live for something, you must die to something else. And Olympic athletes are not just athletes. My goodness, there are athletes all in this room everywhere, but not Olympic athletes. Olympic athletes are extraordinary. They are set apart because they act extraordinarily. He's different because he's willing to do things other people will not do, or at least will not do it to the degree that he will do it. They understand the greater the death, the greater the life. The greater the loss, the greater the gain. Now, when it comes to the Nazarite vow, there are three components to it. First, we're told they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drinks. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. That would kill me right there. I love raisinettes. <laughs> so the first thing, if you're going to take this vow, and remember the Nazarite vow was something you took, you took it because you were so desperate that you needed the supernatural intervention of God in your life. And if you didn't get it, your life was going to fall apart. So you took this vow. And first, no wine, which was huge because wine was central to everything in the Old Testament. Every party, every celebration, wedding, funeral, every feast, and they were constant feasts every Friday night. Every Friday night to issue in Sabbath. It started by the drinking of wine. So man, if you're not drinking wine in these days, man, you're, you're, just, you're, you're giving up something that was so part and parcel to natural living that it would alter, it would change the everyday practices of life. Significantly, every event in Hebrew life and culture included wine. It's the equivalent of our Coke, not cocaine, Coca-Cola. <laughs> For those of you who are still in the dark side, Pepsi. <laughs> now, wine was so central to life. The vow meant that you were agreeing to radically alter the patterns of your life. So let's say that together, Edwana. Here we go. The vow meant that you were agreeing to radically alter the patterns of your life. So there were simply going to be some things now that you can no longer do. You can't participate in some of these major events, weddings, funerals, parties, celebrations, feasts. You just had to say no to the invitation because you were making a commitment of self-denial. You were acting in an extraordinarily way in hopes that God would do something extraordinary in you. You were agreeing to deny yourself something enjoyable, loved, and central. Something that wasn't wrong at all. But something that you were giving up to compel the supernatural hand of God into your life. There was little resemblance between what you were before the vow and what you were after. So first, don't drink wine. Second, don't cut your hair. Now some young kid right now is saying, see, dad, I told you it was in the Bible. <laughs> Number six, five says, during the entire period of the Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over, and they must let their hair grow long. Now, here's the question. Why have long hair? It was an issue of accountability. This may become a surprise to you, but nobody else had long hair. So if you had long hair, everybody knew that you were taking the Nazarite vow. Now, the reason that was important is so that someone wouldn't come up to you and say, dude, Samson's having a parley, Delilah's bringing the wine, come on. You wouldn't do that to somebody with long hair because you would not tempt them that way. If you saw them walking into the pub, you'd say, dude, don't go in there. You've got the Nazarite vow. Don't do it. 
Plus, at the end of the vow, the consummation of the vow, you would have given up everything. You'd be so poor, the only thing you got left is your long hair, and the first thing the priest's going to do is cut it off. And you're going to offer what even is left to God. You're so desperate. But there's a beautiful symbolism in the Nazarite vow, and it's this. You're agreeing that God is powerful enough to take something from you and actually make you stronger. So let's say that one together. God is powerful enough to take something from me and actually make me stronger. Again, this is not a foreign idea to us. We go to the gym. We take away energy. Energy is taken from us, but we gain strength. The same thing happens when you're fasting. The whole idea of fasting is that you give up physical food so that you may gain spiritual strength. So first, no wine. Second, no razor. Third, no dead body. You can't go around a dead body. Number six says, throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to the Lord is on their head. In other words, don't defile yourself in any way. It's total purity. For us, it wouldn't be that difficult because, well, we could just avoid dead bodies. But back then, there were no hospitals or hospices. No, not even any ambulances. You're born at home, you grew old at home, you died at home, and then the family, the rest of them will carry your body out. These were tight communities. Aunts, uncles, cousins, nephews, nieces, grandma, grandpa, they all lived in the same compound called the insula. So you all lived together. Got it? So if my grandparents are over there, my wife's parents are over there, can you imagine? <laughs> 10 yards away, across the courtyard, Live my nieces and nephews. Over there is my grand aunt and my uncle. So when it says you can't go in near a dead body, man, that's going to be hard for you to do because life expectancy in those days is very short. Anyone could die at any moment. And if they did, you couldn't serve as the pallbearer. You couldn't escort your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. You couldn't even attend the funeral because you had made a commitment, a vow of purity that you would not be defiled in any way. So let's review. If you're going to take this vow, remember you're taking it because you want God to act and move in a supernatural way in your life. So number one, no wine. You give up something that is natural to everyday life. Two, no razor. That's to show everybody that you're accountable and others to help you because you could not achieve this vow on your own. You're going to need help, family, friends, community. And third, don't go around a dead body. Don't defile yourself in any way. So that you were engaging in a radically different way of living. Let's repeat that together. You were engaging in a radically different way of living. Let's do it again. You were engaging in a radically different way of living. Now, how long did the vow last? Number six, five says, they must be holy. That is set apart until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. Well, how long is that? The Hebrew says, until the days are fulfilled. Well, how long is that? It depends on how big of a miracle you need. How desperate are you for the supernatural hand of God to do something in your life? And so that would be consistent with how long you took the vow. You entered into it because you were desperate. You wanted God to move in a dramatic way and you needed him to move. There was some pursuit and you were passionate about it. You were desperate. You were so focused that you knew that you could not bring this vow to completion without the supernatural intervention of God. Some sin in your life, some mountain that had to be climbed, some great and wondrous endeavor that God would have to release his divine energy if it were ever to be realized. 
And in history, we have people taking this vow up to 30 days, 90 days, three years, and seven years. Seven years. And then notice how the vow was completed. Number 613, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the period of their dedication is over, they were to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. They, there, they are to present their offerings to the Lord. Now, I don't have time to tell you all the offerings, but let me just give you a list. When you came to the temple, the tent of meeting, for the consummation of the vow, you're to bring with you things like a year old ram, a, a ram without defect, a grain offering, a drink offering, a basket of bread made or with yeast, cakes made with fine flour or mixed with oil, wafers spread with oil, thick loaves of bread. I mean, the list kept going on and on. And if you read this list, the first thing that's going to dawn on you in that time is that these are extremely expensive items. Who has all that stuff? Nobody can afford all that. They're not just things that are lying around the house. You know, for me, it's like, for you and me, rather, it would be like thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, how many of you say, hey, go grab those, go grab that Tim, Tim Grant out of the bedroom, Billy, you know, or Billy, go, go grab a lamb and a ram without any defect. And while you're at it, bring me the grain offering and the drink offerings and the few thick loaves of bread. Nobody has that just sitting around. So where do you get it? And if you did have it, you're going to have to put it all on a wagon. <laughs> it's, it's so much stuff, you're going to have to transport it to the tent of meeting. And of course, the whole point is that there's no way you're going to be able to fulfill this vow on your own. You're going to have to, it's the, it's the original GoFundMe. <laughs> people, people are going to have to give you some stuff so that you have what you need. They're going to have to come a, a, around you and alongside you. And they're going to have to say, I believe in what you're doing. And I believe this thing that you're after, this pursuit is so valuable. It's so marvelous that I want to I be right here beside you. Again, you'd have to sell everything you own to get this stuff, and you would have to have your friends donate. There's no way you're going to be able to do it on your own, and you'd need family and friends who believed in you, held you accountable, celebrated the completion of your vow. So the final beautiful picture when you're going to the tent of meeting, I want you to try to picture this in your mind's eye. So you've got this long-haired dude Long hair, man. Long, I mean, it's down here. He hasn't cut it for a long time. And he's altered his way of life. He looks totally different. He stands out, man, in a crowd. He's marching up to the tent of meeting, and there's this big wagon behind him with all this stuff, donated by friends and family and everything that he owns. And on their way up to the tent of meeting, they're singing He's tired, he's weary, but there's a sense of joy in him. And then something extraordinary happens. When he gets to the tent of meeting, remember, he's totally broke. He owes everybody and their mama. <laughs> he's had this wonderful communal experience, but he's still flat broke. And then the Bible says, then at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off their hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and put it into the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship of the offering. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord as a wave offering. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication in addition to whatever else they can afford. How do you like that last line? By the way, if there's anything else laying around the house, bring it too. <laughs> now to a person who was involved in this vow, it was a glorious thing. Most young boys had memorized the Torah by age 13, and they had heard about people who had taken this vow, but most of them had, had never seen anybody. They'd never seen this kind of thing. 
They had heard about people who were so passionate about God doing something extraordinary that they themselves were willing to live out of the ordinary. So passionate about God doing something that was life-changing that they were willing to change their lives for it significantly. Desperate for God to do something supernatural that they would be willing to give up something that is natural to everyday living. They were people who were earnest, who were desperate, so desperate, so earnest, they were willing to do a physical and spiritual detox in hopes that God would move. And then one day, these young boys and girls who had memorized the Torah would go to the tent of meeting, and you think about what they would see. They've heard about guys like this. And then the end would walk this guy again with unbelievably long hair. He's penniless, but they can see that something's happened to him. There's a sense of fulfillment and joy around him. The celebration begins. The imagery's overwhelming. You can tell by the look on his face he had finally found what he'd been looking for. A picture of desperation and celebration and rejoicing. A picture of something extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous. And then the priest would read that famous line to him. Oh, the Lord bless you now and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and now give you peace. Now, why did I take you through that? Every narrative we said in the Old Testament leads to a greater narrative. You with me? Every narrative that you see is a pointer to a greater narrative. Who was the ultimate Nazarite? Who took the ultimate Nazarite vow? Did he do anything extraordinary? Was he set apart? Was he different than everybody else? Did he change his way of living? Did he sacrifice anything for the extraordinary? Did God intervene and grant his request? Folks, listen, have you ever been anywhere that you just took a look at it? You stood up and you thought, man, that is, that I am in awe of what I'm seeing right now. You were just overwhelmed and you didn't need to take photos because it, it made its way right in here and you're never going to forget it. The first five years of my ministry, I kept going back and back to this place called Murawai Beach because that's the place that I'll never forget. It's beautiful. And I know there's a photo going to come any moment. <laughs> See, you can't explain it. These pictures don't do it justice because there's no hotels. It's, it's, it's untamed. When you're out there, it's like you've, you've left planet earth and you've gone to a little glimpse of heaven and you got the Gannett colony. It's, it's just to stand there. You could do it for hours and suddenly you feel like that maybe this is where God takes his vacation. Maybe this is where God is. But as beautiful as that is, and it is beautiful, if I could take you to heaven right now, and I could give you a one-on-one with Jesus, do you know what would happen? His brightness would overwhelm you. Your heart would skip a beat. You would have trouble catching your breath. You'd probably collapse and fall to your knees. You'd be so overwhelmed with adoration and awe and admiration and astonishment. And by contrast, you would do what Isaiah did. Woe is me. I'm undone. And yet, when Jesus came to earth, taking the ultimate Nazarite vow, Isaiah 53 said, he had no beauty that we would be drawn to him. He gave up his glory. He emptied himself of glory and beauty. He emptied himself of everything that evokes honor. He came and he was poor. And eventually he was beaten and tortured and killed. The God of the universe who created everything. He didn't write the story of creation. He created. And now here he is 
He became rejectable, therefore was rejected. And Jesus even said himself in Matthew 8, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The creator of everything had nothing. The sacrifice he made was unimaginable. I mean, my goodness, you and I give up chocolate. He gave up his deity. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, willingly. Because he was part of a supernatural plan of God to redeem you and me. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.